You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Jonah chapter 3. Good to see you this morning. Great to have you here. Um, I hope that, that the Holy Spirit's going to really have some, some really good things for you. Jonah 3. Um, I'm going to start with a quote that I, I throw out a lot because it's one of those that when I first heard it, I never could get over it. I couldn't just like put this one on the shelf and pull it off later. Um, this is one of those that, that God just kind of lodged in my heart um, when, when I first heard the quote. And so this is from A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, um, good theologian. He, he says this, The most important thought that you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. Now just sit and simmer on that statement for a second. The most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. Okay, now this is one of the reasons for that. Is because like we talked about last week, we're all hardwired to worship. God created us as worshiping people. Now that has a bigger view in mind than us singing songs. What worship is biblically, it's a wide, vast subject. And the idea of worship is what we ascribe ultimate worth too. It's what we look to for our identity, our significance, to rescue us from our insecurities, what we look to for purpose and pleasure and value. That's what we worship. And the Bible is going to be real clear as it kind of walks us through this, that we're all created worshipers. We're all going to look to something for that. We're, we're hardwired to do that. But the Bible only gives us two options with our worship. Either we worship God, the creator, or we worship his gifts, the creation, right? These are the only two options with worship. Either it is directed at God or it's directed at one of his gifts and it's idolatry. Idolatry is what happens when we look to things smaller than God and less than God for our identity, for our significance, to rescue us from our insecurities, for our purpose and our pleasure. That's what idolatry is. And these are the only two options with worship. And the reason that this thought is the most important thought you will ever think is it directs your worship. This is the thought that sets the trajectory of your worship. This is the thought that determines whether or not you're going to worship God who you're created to worship or an idol who you were not created to worship. That thought, the most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. That thought determines everything for you. See, if when you have that thought, like the thought that immediately follows God, if it is a small thought, if it is a weak thought, if it is any sort of a thought that is not amazing in nature, that is not awe-inspiring, that is not overwhelming, then what's going to happen is we're going to start this desperate search for something that something else that will give us that. You see how this plays itself out? When our mind is not exhilarated and overwhelmed by who God is, when it is not amazed and awed by who God is, we'll start this search for awe and amazement in a thousand lesser things. So maybe I could say it this way. The reason we bow in our culture at the altar of our kids is because we have lost amazement with God. The the reason we bow at the altar of career is because we have lost our awe of God. 
The, the reason so many men and women, by the way, are, are bowing at the altar of immorality, of pornography, is because they have lost being overwhelmed by God. See, that's all the byproduct of not having a huge, beautiful, and biblical view of the God of grace. Now, when you open the book of Jonah, this is Jonah's problem, by the way. Jonah is a decent theologian. His theology is on in the book of Jonah. His awe of God is off. See, he's got an accurate knowledge of God. But, the, but his, his awe and amazement of God is, is absent in the book of Jonah. See, when you read the book of Jonah, Jonah 1-7, he's got good theology. God created all things. You go to chapter 4, verse 2, he's got great theology. This is the God that is abounding in grace, slow to anger. This is that God. He's got great theology, but that theology that should spark in him and stir in him and awe of God has ceased to amaze him. And I wish it was just Jonah's problem, right? I wish this wasn't our problem. But see, the problem in our hearts, many of us in this room right now, the problem in our hearts, the reason we are running after a thousand substitute saviors is because we have lost our awe of God. That thought that immediately follows the word God is not exhilarating. It doesn't represent the biblical view of this great God of grace. Okay, now let me give you a quote by Sinclair Ferguson. He, he just came up with a new book called By Grace Alone. And, and let me give you um, kind of some insight from him into this issue of when we're not amazed by grace, when we're not amazed by this God of grace, our hearts, they, they get on the search smaller, lesser things to, to fill that awe, to, to find that amazement. And listen to what he says. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. In other words, if you want of, if you want spiritual vitality, if you want passion in your pursuit of God, if you want a desperation to characterize your running after God, it takes you being amazed by grace. Listen to what he goes on to say, or to say. He says, being amazed by grace, it's the litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close is our walk with Jesus. So this is the determiner, your amazement by grace. He goes on to say, the growing Christian finds that the grace of God astonishes and amazes him. Can I ask you a question? Are you amazed at the grace of God? I mean, are you astounded by it? Does it create awe in you? Now, listen to what he goes on to say about how this relates to the church. He says, A chief reason for the weakness of the Christian church in the West, for the poverty of our, of our witness, and any lack of spiritual vitality in our worship. He says, It probably lies here. Now, listen to these words. It probably lies in the fact that we sing about amazing grace and speak of amazing grace but far too often it has ceased to amaze us. Now, is that us in this room? Have we ceased to be amazed by God's amazing grace? Look what he goes on to say. 
Sadly, we might more truthfully sing of God's accustomed grace. We have lost the joy and energy that are experienced when grace seems truly amazing to us. See, Jonah's problem is our problem. Although theology is correct, an awe of God is absent. Okay, so here's what I want to do. This is my, this is my goal for the day. I want to take the first three verses of chapter three, and I want to try to lift up some biblical realities about this God of grace. And here's what I'm hoping, hoping happens in you, is that this God of grace starts to stir and stoke in you an amazement of that grace and awe of that grace. So you don't just sing about it so that you can really savor it and be amazed by it. Okay, so this is the goal. Okay, now before I read these first three verses, let let me just throw out some credit to to one guy real quick. And I've told you this a couple of times, that if you want a joy-creating, soul-refreshing read through the book of Jonah, if you want that, just something you can kind of read parallel to Jonah, Tulian Chevetchen has written a book called Surprised by Grace. I would recommend for you, for sure. And, And so when I read his book a few months ago, these verses came alive to me in the midst of that. Okay, so with that credit... There, let's read chapter three, verse one. It says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and you might circle this, the second time. Verse two, saying, verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Here's the first thing I want you to see about This amazing God of grace is that God doesn't hold grudges. God doesn't hold grudges. Okay, now now think about this for a second here. Remember the storyline of the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God comes to Jonah and says, Go to Nineveh. Arise. Go call out against it. But instead of running toward the command of God, which everybody, when you first read the book of Jonah, that's what you're expecting. You're expecting Jonah, a good prophet, to go after God's good command. But instead of going after that command, he runs from that command. Right? Do you remember this? He he goes down to Joppa on his way to Tarshish. And God, in his pursuing grace, even in Jonah's defiance, comes after and pursues Jonah in the form of a storm. So so God comes after. Jonah is running. God is pursuing. And and what I think from Jonah's perspective would be this final act of defiance that he's about to kind of shake his fist at God with. He looked at the sailors and says, listen, if this is how God's going to play, then just throw me over. I'd rather be dead than obey this command. But God still would not let him win. Remember this? God sends a fish to swallow Jonah and God puts Jonah in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Now somewhere between that boat and the beach that Jonah is about to be vomited upon, picture that, right? Like that is one of those scenes I would love to be there when that happens, right? I mean, how do you even explain what you just saw right there, right? And so somewhere between that boat and that beach, you have got Jonah, much like the prodigal son in Luke 15, coming to his senses. He calls out to God, prays to God, pleads to God. And God, even though Jonah was rebellious, defiant, even to the point of death, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, God comes to him, a second time. 
No grudges. Think about what is not said in Jonah 1, or Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You, you, this is what is not said. And, and pick, maybe, maybe picture yourself in the place of God for just a second. I mean, how would you have handled this situation, right? I mean, how do you handle situations that are similar to this? Well, how do you handle the situation where um, somebody has just experienced the destruct, destructive consequences of a dumb decision that you told them not to do? And they come running back to you, tell between their legs, pleading for mercy. Right? Maybe you've been there recently, right? So how, how do you respond to that person who didn't heed your warnings, didn't take your advice, made a dumb decision that you knew was dumb, you told them it was dumb. You know what comes out of our mouth? Those words that we love to speak but hate to hear. I told you so, right? This is what comes out of our mouth in that moment. But you don't see that in Jonah chapter 3. God doesn't give Jonah the I told you so speech, does he? He, he doesn't give Jonah the, okay, first, before we have another conversation, why don't you go ahead and bow down and tell me all of the things you did wrong here? Why don't you list those on a page just so the world can see that? He doesn't give that. Jonah, or God doesn't even give Jonah a rebuke. He doesn't remind Jonah of all of his past failures. God doesn't kind of get his last two cents in before they move on, right? He doesn't kind of vent his frustrations before they kind of get this thing finalized. He doesn't do any of those things. None of those things appear. Now think about what does appear. Jonah 3, chapter 1. With no warning, God comes to him a second time. Aren't we thankful for a God who does not keep grudges? Aren't we thankful for a God who comes a second time? Maybe you could think of it this way. What would our lives be? What would happen to you if God kept his grudges? See, the psalmist in Psalms 130 answers the question for us. Here's what would happen. He, he looks at God and says, God, if you marked our iniquities, like if you kept those all kind of piled up and put those over us, who could stand? I mean, who would survive? See, this is the reality. If God kept grudges against you and grudges against me like we often keep on other people, if God did that, we would all be dead. See, if we believed in karma, Jonah would be buried under the bottom of the sea, right? That would be the fate of Jonah. But we don't believe that. We believe in a God of grace, rescuing grace, no grudges, grace. This is the picture that you are seeing displayed for you in Jonah. Okay, now we need to make sure we're seeing this picture clearly though. Grace is unobligated. Grace is undeserving from our perspective. There is nothing you're going to do to earn God's grace. There is no way you can put God in your debt to where you deserve grace. It is unobligated by God. He does not have to give it. And listen, in our culture that expects the grace of God, as if we earned it and as if we deserve it, we need to hear this. You and I do not deserve grace. It's unobligated from God. He's got complete freedom to give it to whom he wills and to withhold it from whom he wills. He's got complete freedom to do what he wants with his grace. I think about um, Genesis chapter 19, Lot and his family. Do you remember what happened to Lot's wife? Remember, remember the story? Um, God is, uh, is in the middle of crushing Sodom and Gomorrah, right? 
unobligated grace right there. That, that's not, he, he's not less glorious because he wipes out a city. Okay, so, so he gives Lot and his family one command. You run and you don't look back. You run and you don't look back, right? Lot's wife looks back one time. Bam, pillar of salt. See, and God is not less glorious because he does that. He is perfectly right in doing that. He is perfectly good in doing that. He is perfectly God in doing that. Um, how about Ananias and, Sapp- and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? Um, they, they act as if they have sold their land and they are giving all of the proceeds to the church. They didn't have to. They weren't obligated to. They're just lying about it. They're acting as if they were, right? But they're not. They're withholding some for themselves. Sapphira comes in and they ask the question, is this what you're doing? She lies. She's dead in an instant. God kills her on the spot, right? God is not less glorious, less great. He's unobligated with his grace. The husband, Ananias, comes in a, a few minutes later, lies again. He's dead too. See, God's grace is unobligated. We need to hear that, that we do not deserve it, that if God is right and holy and just, he can kill us just like that. But here is what makes the grace of God so amazing is that when you look from Genesis to Revelation, this God that is unobligated to give grace to these people that are undeserving of it, what you see showcased throughout the scriptures is a God who pours grace upon his people in the form of second chances. Ask Jonah, right? Jonah is a rebel. He's defiant. He has shaken his fist at God and said, I don't care who you are. I will not obey. And yet God comes to him in the form of a second chance. Ask Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham? God comes to Abraham and says, um, okay, Abe, I'm going to make you and Sarah into a great nation. I know you don't have kids yet, and I know you're past like the child rearing years, but I'm going to make you a great nation. All the nations are going to be blessed through that nation I'm going to make through you. Do you remember this story? And what happens when Abraham and Sarah break under their unbelief? Right? Abraham grabs a servant and has a son through him or her. That would be weird. Um, her, not, not Sarah. Right? Do you remember the story? God could have killed him just like that and been right in doing it. But God speaks to him again, comes to him in the form of a second chance. Do you remember our man David in the scriptures? The man that, that is called a, a person after God's own heart. This man took another man's wife committed adultery with that lady, got her pregnant, and because he couldn't cover it up, killed her husband. See, if he lived in Texas, he would have just been taken out back and beaten to death, right? That's what would have happened to him here. And yet God comes to him a second time. How about our disciples? In the moment where God, where Jesus needed them most, you remember what happened to him? They all betrayed him. They all ran. Peter denies him three times. But do you remember what happens with Jesus and Peter when Jesus is resurrected? He comes back to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah. Okay, well, feed my sheep. This is the grace of God, unobligated, undeserved, coming in the form of second chances. You see this showcase throughout the scriptures. You see it permeating all the pages of scripture. It's everywhere. This is what Isaiah or what, what um, Ephesians is talking about in Ephesians 1, 8, where Paul says, God lavishes this grace on you. 
I mean, he just pours it out in like overabundance on you. This is what we see showcased. A God who does not hold grudges. Okay, now let me put in a couple of clarifying pieces to this. Clarifying piece number one. The gospel is what destroys God's grudges. The gospel is what does that. So see, it's not as if God doesn't have and doesn't hold grudges against people because he does. This is why Romans 5 says that we are enemies of God. This is why Ephesians 2 says we are objects of his wrath. This is why Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. God is not indifferent toward our sin. This is why Romans 2 is going to say, that because of your hard and impotent hearts, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath. It is a bad day coming for you because God is saying, I have a grudge. I am not indifferent toward your sin. There will be a day that you and your sin will meet me and my judgment. There will be a day that you and your sin meet me and my holiness. There will be a day that you and your sin meet me and my justice. That day is coming. My wrath is coming on that. This is God with a grudge. See, this is the bad news of the gospel right here. This is the bad news of the gospel that makes the great news of the gospel, or good news of the gospel, great news, right? This bad news is necessary for us to see that the God does have a grudge against you, against me. But the gospel is what gives us a God that is grudgeless. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is saying this, that through Christ, I am reconciling the world to myself. Through Christ, I'm reconciling people. And here's how I'm doing it. I am not counting their trespasses against them. I am letting go of my grudge. I am canceling their debt. Now, it's not as if God just kind of sweeps it under the rug and acts like it doesn't exist. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a couple of verses later, shows us what God does with the grudge. He says, for our sake, he made him, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin. He was perfect. He made Christ to be sin for us in our place. And then here's the other side of the gospel, that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. See, this is the great news of the gospel, that although God has a grudge against us, On the cross, God's grudge was piled onto Jesus. And because of the cross, his pursuing grace was given to us. You see that? This is the great news of the gospel. This is why God comes to us without a grudge. See, this is the picture of of the, the, really the prodigal God in the story of the prodigal son, right? You've got the, 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 Younger son who looks at his father and says, listen, give me half of my inheritance. Give me it now. I want your money and I want it now. I don't care if I live in your presence. He breaks the heart of his father as he pursues pleasure. And you remember what happens after the son has wasted it all, come to his senses, much like Jonah in a pigsty, and he has turned back and he's walking back toward his father. Do you remember what happens with the father? He looks from a long way off and sees his son Without a grudge, he runs to him. He kisses him. He throws a feast for him. See, the gospel gives us a God that is grudgeless. The gospel gives us a God who says, all of my grudge was piled onto Jesus. So now you have 
all of my pursuing affection. You see why this is good news for Jonah, for Abraham, for David, for the disciples, and for you and I? See, because of this, God can look at Jonah and say, Jonah, all of your rebellion, all of your defiance, all of your ignorance, all of it, all of you, Jonah, I could hang all of that around your neck, but Jonah, I'm grudgeless because I'm gonna hang it all around the neck of Jesus. See, this is why he can look at you and say, all of your defiance, all of your hard-heartedness, all of your rebellion, all of your sin, I could hang around your neck, I could carry this grudge, but instead, I have held my grudge, all of that, around the neck of Jesus. You see the gospel here? You see what's playing out here? The gospel gives us God without a grudge. The gospel destroys the grudge of God. Okay, now we could stop here, but I want to pry into this one step further. The gospel doesn't just destroy God's grudge against us. The gospel also destroys all the grudges in us. You see this? That the grace of God, the gospel, is what destroys grudges in you. See, when you are gripped by the grace of God in the gospel, it allows you to loosen your grip around all of your grudges. Maybe I could say it this way. That what creates the capacity in you and I to let go of our grudges is us seeing and savoring God's willingness to let go of the grudge he has against us. You see this. What creates the capacity for us to forgive is when we realize what we have been forgiven for. See, what creates the capacity for us to cancel the debt that other people have accrued against us is we, when we realize that all the debt we have accrued against God, all of that debt has been canceled by God for us. Do you see this? That the gospel not only destroys this grudge in God, but it destroys the grudges in you. There's this beautiful um, moment in the life of, of Peter and Jesus where, where Jesus is, is preaching on and describing forgiveness. And Peter, and I, I think the tone is, is, when Peter asks this question, is it, sarcastic and a little bit mocking. He says, okay, so seriously, isn't there like a line between what we really should forgive and what we shouldn't? Isn't there like a limit to our forgiveness? Isn't there like a point where we can be okay with not forgiving people, with holding our grudges? Isn't there a limit to this, God? And you remember in in Matthew 18 how how Jesus responds back to Peter? He tells the story of a king. And this king has people that are in great debt to him. So so he starts going down the record. He's he's ready to start calling some debt. So he looks at this one man who's in debt to the king, 10,000 talents. One talent equals 20 years of wages. 10,000 of those. See, this is an unpayable debt. It's an impossible payment. It's impossible for this guy to get out of this. And so the king looks at him and he says, pay up. It's time. The guy can't pay. So the king looks at him and says, okay, well, go sell yourself into slavery. You're going to have to sell your family into slavery. You're going to have to sell everything. And it's not that it's going to pay for the debt, but we may call it good with that. Okay, so do you remember what happens here? The, The guy looks at the king and pleads for the life of his family. And the king cancels his massive debt. The king 
lets go of this grudge. And do you remember what happens to the guy that, that has the debt canceled? He quickly forgets what, what has been given him, right? He, he quickly forgets the grace the king has shown him. So he starts looking around for people he can go collect debts from. And he realizes there's this one man over here that's in debt to him, a hundred denarii. That's a denarii is one day's wage. So three months wage. He, he's got this small debt over here. He's ready to go collect the debt. So he goes to the guy and says, listen, it's time to pay up. The guy can't pay it. He chokes the guy, demanding payment, and then throws him into prison. This is a picture of us. See, when we do not live under and live in, when we lose sight of the grace-canceling debt, or or this yeah grace-canceling debt of Jesus, when we lose sight of that, we start going around trying to cancel all of these little debts that other people have accrued against us. See, when we lose sight that God has canceled a debt for us that we could never pay, when we lose sight of that, we start trying to collect from everyone and everything. And can I just tell you this, that regardless of how deeply a person has hurt you in this life, it pales in comparison with how deeply you have hurt God. That regardless of how big you believe other people's debts against you are, it pales in comparison with how big your debt was toward God. And, and when we hold on to grudges, it shows that just like this man in the story, we have left and we have stopped seeing and we can't recognize what God has, has, has given to us. The grace of God that was extended to us. See, grudges and a heart amazed by grace cannot coexist. If we were to look at your life and your understanding of grace, amazement of grace, just in how you deal with grudges against other people, what might we find there? That gets a little personal really quickly, doesn't it? What might we find when we start scratching on that? See, when we are gripped by grace, we start to let go of our grudges against others. See, this is what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4.32 when he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, see, grace, the gospel, is our motive and our means. It creates the capacity for us to cancel the debt of other people. See, the gospel not only destroys God's grudge against us, it destroys all of these little grudges that we hold against others. Do you see this God of amazing grace? This God of, of grudgeless grace? Do you see this God? Are you amazed at him? When you look at your debt toward him and his payment for it in the person and work of Jesus, does it stir up in you an awe? Is that, is that an overwhelming response there? Are we amazed by that? Or has that become something we're accustomed to, right? We kind of deserve. God's kind of obligated to give that to us, right? Okay, there's more in this passage though. Not only does God not hold a grudge, God does not negotiate. He's not a negotiator in this passage. Notice what the passage doesn't say. It doesn't say that, well, God kind of started to understand it from from Jonah's perspective and kind of like a parent that's just really tired of fighting, you know? I mean, you've ever been to that point as a parent? You're just tired of the battle. 
I mean, so, so God kind of like that tired parent just looked at the crying of Jonah and finally just kind of caves into it. It doesn't say that. Look at what it does say. Instead of that, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and this is what God said. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. See, it's an exact repeat of what God said in chapter 1, verse 2. Jonah 3.2 is a repeat of Jonah 1.2. God doesn't lessen the command. He doesn't lighten the command. He doesn't kind of, um, you know, kind of cave to the crying of Jonah. He does none of those things. And neither does God do that to you. Like think about, think about the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, have no other gods before me. See, God doesn't come beside that commandment and say, you know what, I know I'm asking a little too much from you. I know, I know that's hard. So rather than no gods before me, let's just keep it at no more than two. God doesn't do that, does he? Okay, think about um, adultery. God doesn't say, don't commit adultery, and then, then come back and say, but listen, I know your situation. I know you're, I know it's tough. He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't come and say, you know, I know I told you not to murder, but your husband really is a jerk, right? He doesn't do that. That is not what you see God doing. Instead, this is what you see God doing. Think about what happened to the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the commands of God are clarified and intensified, not modified and lightened. See, when you get to the New Testament, it's not don't commit adultery. It's God saying, here's what I really mean by that. Let me clarify that for you. Here's what I mean. I mean, don't harbor any lust for anything in your heart. That's what I really mean. He does, think of the New Testament here. Clarifies and intensifies. Think about this commandment not to murder. He doesn't just say don't murder the jerk. He says, no, it's not just don't murder him. It's don't harbor hate in your heart toward him. It's let go of all of your animosity toward him. You see how God clarifies and intensifies it? Okay, now, God does not negotiate with us, right? He doesn't come to us on our terms with these things. Now, that may not seem like grace to you, but it's grace to you. The God who won't negotiate is a God who is for you. The God who doesn't lighten his commands is a God that is good to you. Let me give you a couple of reasons for that. Number one, God's commands at the end of the day are for your good. God's commands are for your good. Now, I, uh, I spent eight years in student ministry before we started Stonegate. And if there's anything more humbling than student ministry on the planet, I don't know what it is, right? Think about you trying to preach and you've got like an eighth grader making out with his girlfriend on the back row, You've got this little kid picking his nose. I mean, that's, this is what you deal with right there in student ministry, right? If you know a student minister, you need to go like bow down to them and give them a hundred dollar bill like today, right? They deserve that. I'm telling you. Okay. So, so in eight years of doing that, here's one of the things I realized really quickly is that there is in a heart of almost every teenager, a belief about God that goes like this. God is not out for me. He is out against me. See, when I look at the commands of God, don't lust. Here's what you do with money. Here's how you treat your parents. 
See, when I think about those commands of God, they don't seem like God is out for me. It seems like he's out against me. It doesn't seem like God is out to fulfill my desires, but he is out to frustrate my desires. You see this? It's in the heart of almost every teenager. And listen, it trails along into adulthood. It's here. It's in you. This belief that the commands of God are really about robbing your joy. And so one of the things I would consistently try to do every time I could throw this in as I'm preaching, I would bring in Deuteronomy uh, 10, 12 and 13 every time I got a chance. And this is what God's saying in, the, in these two verses. He's, he's looking at the people of Israel and he's saying, what do I require of you? What do I expect of you? But to fear me, to serve me, to walk in my ways, to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to follow the commands that I'm giving you today. And then this is the last phrase in, in verse 13. He says, these commands that I'm giving you, last three words, for your good. The commands of God are for your good. See, the commands of God align us up with what reality is. And when we start to live in the commands of God, we start to live in tune with reality. See, the commands of God are not meant to rob our joy, but they're meant to reap in us great joy. That's the commands of God for your life. They are out for your good. So whatever command, whether it deals with money, marriage, you whatever command you want to throw out there, that is God being gracious and good to you. It's only our ignorance that thinks it's God robbing us, right? Let me give you another one. It's not only that God's commands are good for us, but God's commands are one of God's primary ways to expose our heart. See, God's commands expose idolatry in us. This is what the commands of God do. Think about Jonah. Jonah was a good prophet, national hero. Jonah was the man. And if you would have asked Jonah, I think previous to Jonah, how are you doing with God? Like, tell me about what's going on here. He would have said, man, we are going well together. This, this is a good thing we've got rolling here. All is well with me and God. But see, you know what happened in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2? Jonah, or God gave Jonah a command, and that command showed Jonah, exposed in Jonah, that things weren't so well between he and God. That Jonah had a defiant heart toward God, a hard heart toward God. It showed, that command showed Jonah that there was a mistress that had wiggled its way into God's marriage with Jonah right? It, it was God's means to show Jonah that Jonah had a problem in his heart, that there was idols underneath the surface of his heart. God's commands were God's quickest way to cut right to the core of Jonah's heart. You see this? The same is true for us. See, the commands of God are God's quickest way to show us where idolatry exists in us. So take the, like, take the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. You know what that command does to us, just like it does to Jonah? It shows where we're a bigot and we don't like people very much. Where we will look down our nose at other people as if they don't really deserve grace. It shows us how, just like Jonah, we're okay when we get grace and we really don't care if they get it. See, it shows in us the heart of Jonah. See, think about why not only are we not making disciples of all nations, right? We're not involved in that, but we're not involved even in the neighborhood piece of that. It shows us where we are addicted to our idols of approval, of comfort, right? See, this is what that command shows us. 
See, when we're not actively on the mission of God, God's command to be on the mission of God shows us idolatry in our heart. Think about this if you're a man in the room, that God has called you in Ephesians 5.25 to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How are we doing there? Right? Pretty tough one, isn't it? See, that command over our life exposes in us where we're much more self-centered than we are God-centered. See, see what's happening here? That command is one of God's ways to cut to the core of our heart. If you're a lady in the room, Ephesians 5.22, joyfully follow the, the leadership of the one that God has placed in authority over you, right? How are we doing there? See, that, that real quickly cuts the, the core of our heart that loves to be in control, that loves to be in the position of power. See, this is what those commands do for us. Every command of God has an ability to be a mirror for you, to show you idolatry in your heart. See, the commands of God really, they start to show us where we want to follow God on our terms, not God's terms. See, this is how most of us operate with God, right? That we look at God and we say, God, I am 90% in. Give me the details and the date and the cost and we'll see about the other 10%, right? This is how we operate with God. God, I'm in as soon as you show me the details. God, you deliver the details. You show me how X, Y, and Z add up to what I need it to add up to. And God, I am all about it. I am. It, see, it shows us where we want to follow God on our terms, not God's terms. But God is no negotiator. He does not succumb to our terms. He does not cave in to our wants and wishes. He does not cave to our crying before him when it comes to his commands. See, these are good for us. They show us idolatry. They expose our heart. Let me give you one more. And this is a grace awakening reality right here. That God's commands are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now think about this. This is the bad news of all the commands of God. This is the bad news. The bad news is that you can never fulfill them. You can never perfectly walk in them. That husbands, you will never love your wife perfectly as Christ loved the church. That, that ladies, you will never follow the leadership of your husband as you should, as God commands. You'll never ever be perfect. You can't do it. You will never live up to the perfect commands of God. But here's the good news of the gospel is that God has sent his son to live them out perfectly for you. Do you see this? This is the amazing nature of grace that God not only makes the commands, but God also meets the commands. Listen to the words of one pastor talk about this. He says, God does not demonstrate his grace by lessening his demands on our life. His grace is experienced when we come to realize that his perfect demands were perfectly met in his perfect son. God's rescue does not come apart from his law, but in Jesus who perfectly kept it. God not only makes the demands on our life, God meets the demands. See, the commands, the demands of God create in us a desperation, and Christ is who carries us through to the deliverance of it. You see how that works out? This is amazing grace. All the commands are for your good, but you will never perfectly live them. Only Christ can. God is no negotiator. Number three, one more. And I love this reality that you see in Jonah 3, 1 through 3. God 
does not give up. That God, He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't give up on me. As rebellious and rough, as disobedient and defiant as Jonah is, God doesn't give up on Jonah. I mean, it's as if God is saying, Jonah, you can run, but I will run faster. You, you can flee, but Jonah, I am faster than you can flee. I mean, you see what God is doing to Jonah. Jonah, you can do whatever you want to do, but Jonah, I will be faithful to reel you, my rebellious prophet, back in. God never gives up. And I want you to see this, that God doesn't give up on Jonah because God needed Jonah. That's not what's going on here. I mean, there's, a, there's plenty of reliable prophets, more reliable than Jonah would have been to speak God's message. See, see, what you see here is not a God who needs Jonah, but Jonah who needs God. So Jonah, God is coming after Jonah primarily because Jonah is in desperate need but doesn't even know it of God. See, what you see kind of emerging out of chapter 3 is that God is not just concerned about a, re a revival sweeping through Nineveh, but God is equally concerned about revival sweeping through his prophet Jonah. Jonah needs God and God does not give up on Jonah. Can we just make this personal for a second? When I think about my life, I am a living memorial to the fact that God does not give up. If there is anyone that God should have given up on, it is me. I mean, if there's anyone that God should have turned his back on, it is me. I know no one that has sinned like I sin because I know my sin the best. I know no one who has had a disregard for the commands of God like I have. I know no one that, that their defiance has reached the depths that I have to, toward God. I know no one that God should have given up on more than me. And He didn't. Does that overwhelm you and awe you when you think about that in your life? If you're sitting in this room, son and daughter of God or skeptic, either one, you're in this room solely because God has not given up on you. Solely because God is relentless in his pursuit of you. Solely because God is tireless in his effort to hunt down your heart solely because God never pauses in his pursuit of you. That's why you're here. Listen to these words of Sinclair Ferguson. It is solely because we have a God of persistent grace that we are serving him today. Can you see that in your own life? That is the only reason you're serving him today. But as we notice in Jonah's case, God is determined that his servants will serve him no matter what it cost him, God, and no matter what it will cost them, people like Jonah, God does not deal with us in half measures. He is committed to us up to the hilt, as it were. And the thoroughness of God's, or of His commitment to us is the measure of the lengths to which He will go to make us faithful and fruitful children. He does not give up 
on his designs for our life. Amen? This is God. God doesn't give up on his designs for you. That God loves to rescue rebellious people and involve them in his rescuing work. This is God. This is the God of grace who doesn't give up. Listen, the gospel is God's definitive statement that God will spare no expense in his pursuit of you. That God will never grow tired in his pursuit of you. That he will never push pause in his pursuit of you. The gospel is God's definitive statement that he will never give up on you. If you are a son or daughter of God, you can take this to the bank and cash it. That God will never, will not give up. And see, we need to be reminded of this. Some of us today need to be reminded of this because we find ourselves in a deep hole that we have dug in our defiance toward God. And right now, we don't feel like God would dare reach his hand in to deliver us from it, to rescue us from it. And we need to know today that God does not give up on his sons and daughters. And there will be some of us that in the months and years to come, we're going to find ourselves dug into these holes that we feel are too dangerous and deep for God to dip his hand into. And in those moments, we need to know that God does not give up. Amen? Last thing, verse 3. Look at Jonah's response. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Here's, here's what finally happens in verse 3. Jonah finally stops fighting with God, and he finally starts following him. And do you know what needs to happen in many of us today? We need to stop fighting with God and we need to start following him. But see, look at how this happens in Jonah's heart. God didn't come with a strong rebuke on that day. He doesn't, or didn't come with like a baseball bat to knock his head off in that day. He used that moment between the boat and the beach to break Jonah's heart with his kindness toward him. See, what you're seeing play out in Jonah chapter 3 is Romans 2 where it says, don't you know that the kindness of God is what leads you to repentance? Don't you know that it is God's grace towards you that breaks down all of your fighting and creates in you a want to follow him? Don't you know the kindness of God does that? See, here's what happened for Jonah. He has a defiant heart and God dealt with him in amazing grace, held no grudges against him. And it melted that heart that wanted to fight with God and created in him a heart that wanted to follow God. See, in an act of grace, God does not negotiate with Jonah. He doesn't lighten the demands of Jonah. And it melts Jonah's heart. These commands are good for him. So he's no longer fighting, he's now following. See, God melts Jonah's heart with this reality that you can stoop to suicide and I am a better savior. He melts his heart with it. He will never give up on Jonah. And so Jonah finally stops fighting and finally starts following. And may you today, 
May I, may we today be so amazed by this kindness of God, by this grace of God that we see showcased throughout the scriptures and throughout our life that we are melted, that all fighting stops and all following starts. Amen? Let's pray. The most important thought you will ever think in your life is the one immediately following the word God. Are you amazed at this God of grace? Are you awed at this God who keeps no grudges against us? All of the grudge he held against us, he held over Christ. Are you, is that overwhelming to you? Do you see this beautiful God of grace that's showcased throughout the scriptures? See, it's not until we are awed at that that we're amazed at that. It's not until that happens that we will stop our search in smaller things to be amazed at. See, it's not until we are amazed at God that we will start to direct our worship to God who we were made for. Have you grown accustomed to singing amazing grace? When the truth is, it doesn't amaze you anymore? Have you been gripped by grace to the point that you let go of your grudges against others? How does this play out for you, right? My hope and, and prayer for you today is that if you're a skeptic in the room, you're not a follower of God yet, that you would see the God that we worship. That you would see that this God offers you a, a grudge-free life, a grudge-free eternity. That when you trust and treasure Jesus, the grudge of God is destroyed. The grudge of God is no longer held around your neck, but it's transferred to the neck of Jesus. And for those following Jesus in the room, that we would see that our continued defiance, all of our past, present, and future failures, there's no grudges. Every grudge has been piled on Jesus. And all of God's grace is now pursuing us. Oh, that God would sink that deep. So God, will you amaze us with that? God, will you stoke and will you stir our heart to be in awe, to be overwhelmed by you? By what we see showcased throughout the scripture, how you, an unobligated giver, and us, an undeserving recipient, how we so often get so much from you. God, will you help us see that? God, you are good. It's in your great name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.